Section 14 of Astounding Stories 8, August 1930. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tommy Howell. Astounding Stories 8, August 1930 by Arthur J. Burks. Murder Madness by Murray Leinster. Chapter 16. But they did not kill the master before nightfall. It was not quite practicable. Bell and Jameson started out well before dawn with a favorable wind and tide. In the small launch the wizened Welshman placed at their disposal. His air was one of dour piety, but he accepted Bell's offer of money with an obvious relief, and criticized his Paraguayan currency with an acid frankness, until Jameson produced Argentine pesos sufficient to pay for the boat three times over. "'I think,' said Jameson dryly, "'that pa I'm that Miss Canalejas is safe enough until we come back. The keeper is a godly man and knows we have money. She'll be in no danger.' except of her soul. They may try to save that. Bell did not answer. He could think of nothing but the mission he had set himself. He tinkered with the engine to make it speed up, and set the sails with infinite care to make every possible advantage of the stiff breeze that blew. During the day, those sails proved almost as much of a nuisance as a help. The fiendish sullen willowas that blow furiously and without warning about the strait required watching, and more than once it was necessary to reef everything and depend on the motor alone. Bell watched the horizon ahead with smoldering eyes. Jameson watched him almost worriedly. "'Look here, Bell,' he said at last. "'You'll get nowhere feeling like you do.' I know you've done the master more damage than I have, but you'll just run your head into a trap unless you use your brains. For instance, you didn't ask about communications. There's a direct telegraph wire from Cape Virgins to Buenos Aires, and there's telephonic communication between the Cape and Puntas Arenas. Do you imagine that the plane wasn't seen when it came in the Cape? And do you imagine the master doesn't know we're here? Bell turned then and frowned blackly. I hadn't thought of it, he said grimly, but I put some hand grenades in the locker there. You damned fool, said Jameson angrily. Stop being bloodthirsty and use your head. You haven't even asked what I've done. I've done something anyhow. That bundle I chucked in the bow has a couple of sheepmen's outfits in it. Lots of sheep raised around here. We'll put them on before we land, and like a good general... I arranged a method of retreat before we left B.A. There'll be a naval vessel here in two or three days. She's carrying a party of government scientists. She'll anchor in Punta Arenas Harbor and announce a case of some infectious disease on board. No shore leave, you see, and nobody from shore permitted on board her. And she has one or two damn good analytical chemists with a damn good laboratory on board her, too. It's a long gamble, but if we can get a hold of some of the master's poison, do you see... Yes, said Bill heavily. I see. But you haven't been through what I've been through. What I've done, fighting that devil, has caused men to be deserted after being enslaved. 
There's one place. Cuyaba. His face twitched. That place was in his dreams now. That place and others where human beings had watched their bodies go mad and had been carried about screaming with horror at the crimes those bodies committed. I'm going to kill the master, he rasped. That's all. He settled down to his grim watch for the city. All during the cloudy, overcast day, he strained his eyes ahead. Jameson could make nothing of him. In the end, he had to leave Bell to his moody waiting. The morning passed, and midday, and a long afternoon. Three times, Bell came restlessly back to the engine and tried to coax more speed out of it. But when darkness fell, the town was still not in sight. They kept on, then, steering by the stars, with the motor putt-putt-putting sturdily away in the stern. The water splashed and rose all about them. The little boat rose and fell, and rose and fell again. That's the town, said Bell grimly. It was eleven at night, or later. Lights began to appear very far away, dancing mirage-like on the edge of the water. They grew nearer with almost infinite slowness. Two wide bands of many lights, with a darker space in which a few much brighter lights showed clearly. Presently a single red light appeared, the Punta Arenas harbor light, twenty-five feet up on an iron pole. They passed it. Bell, said Jameson curtly, it's time you showed some sense now. We're going to find out some things before we get reckless. This town isn't a big one, but it always was a hell on earth. No extradition from here. It's full of wanted men. It's dying now, from the old days when all ships passed the straits before the Panama Canal opened up. But it ought to still be a hell on earth. And we're going to put on these sheepmen outfits and put up at some low-cast sailors and sheepmen's hotel on shore and find out what is what. In the morning, if you like. In the morning, said Bell coldly, I'm going to settle with the master. They found a small and filthy hotel in a still filthier street where the houses were alternately black and silent and empty, and filled with the squalid hilarity most seaport towns can somehow manage to support. The street lamps were white and cold. The dirt and squalor showed the more plainly by their light. There were sailors from the few ships in harbor, and women so haggard and bedraggled that shrill laughter and lavish endearments remained their only allure. And Bell and Jameson plodded to the reeking place in which a half-drunk sheepman pointed, and there Bell sat grimly in the vermin-infested room while Jameson, swearing wryly, went out. He came back later, much later. His breath was strong of bad whiskey, and he looked like a man who feels that a bath would be very desirable. He looked like a man who feels unclean. Get me a cigarette, he said shortly. I found out most of what we want to know. Bell 
gave him a cigarette, and waited. "'Good thing you stayed behind,' said Jameson. "'I want to vomit. "'Why, people go in hellholes for fun. "'But I was very drunk and very amorous. "'Picked up a woman and fed her liquor. "'Young, too. "'Damnation, she got crying drunk and told me everything she knew. "'I gave her money and left. "'Punta Arenas is the master's, body and soul.' "'One could have guessed it,' said Bell grimly. "'Nothing like it is.' said Jameson. Every living creature, man, woman, and child, has been fed that devilish poison of his. The keepers of the dives go fawning to the local officials for the antidote. The jefe politico is driven in his carriage to be cured when red spots form before his eyes. The damn place is full of suicides and women, and oh my God, it's horrible! A humming, buzzing noise set up off in the night somewhere. It kept up for a long time throttled down. Suddenly it seemed to grow louder, changed in pitch, and dwindled as if into the far, far distance. That's one of the master's planes now, no doubt, said Jameson savagely, going off on some errand for him. He uses this place practically as an experiment station. The human beings here are his guinea pigs. The deputies get a standardized form of the stuff. But he's got it worked out in different doses, so he can make a man go mad in hours, if he chooses, instead of after a delay. I don't know how. And the master... He checked himself sharply. There were shuffling footsteps in the hall outside. A timid tap on the door. Jameson opened it while Bell dropped one hand inconspicuously to a weapon inside his shapeless clothing. The toothless and filthy old man who kept the hotel beamed in at them. Senores, he cackled. Vides son por venir, no es verdad? Jameson hiccuped, as one who has been out and been drunken ought to do. No viejo, he rumbled tipsily. Somos de la estancia del señor Rubio. Vaya. The old man seemed to mourn that they did not come from the sheep ranches about Porvenir Bay. But he produced a bottle with a shaking hand, still beaming. Tengo muchos amigos in Porvenir, he chirped amiably. Y cuesta botella. De mela, rumbled Jameson. He reached out his hand. No más que poquito, said the old man, beaming but anxious as Jameson tilted it to his lips. Es whiskey de gentes. He beamed upon Bell, and Bell swallowed a spoonful and seemed to swallow vastly more. He lay back lazily while Jameson and the part of a tipsy sheep herder bullied the old man amiably and eventually chased him out. You're amused? asked Jameson sardonically, when there were no more sounds outside. Because I said you didn't want to meet the young senorita who loved you when she saw you downstairs. Well, Bell, if you used your brain, you didn't swallow any of that stuff. Bell started up. Jameson caught him by the shoulder. I'm not sure, he said sharply. Uh, of course not, but it's damn funny for a Spanish hotel keeper to give something for nothing, even when he seemed just to want to gossip about his friends. Here, drink this water. It looks vile enough to take the place of mustard. Next morning, the hotel keeper beamed upon them both as they went out of the place. 
A slatternly dark-haired girl who leaned on his shoulder smiled invitingly at Bell. And Bell, in his character of a loudish sheepman from one of the ranches that dot the shores of the strait, grinned awkwardly back. But he went on with Jameson. We separate, said Jameson under his breath. We want to find where the master lives, mostly, and then we want to find the laboratory where his stuff is mixed. We don't want to do any killing until that's settled. After all, the trade has something to say. Bell caught it indifferently and began to wander idly about the streets, turning here and there, as if moved by nothing more than the vaguest curiosity. But gradually he was working through the sections in which the larger buildings stood. Concrete structures, astonishingly modern, dotted the business section. But none of them had the air that would surround a place where a man with power of life or death would be. In a town the size of Punta Arenas, there would be unmistakable evidences about the master's residence. Even if it were only those who passed it did so hurriedly, and with a tinge of fear. There were prosperous men in plenty on the streets, mingled with deserting sailors, stockmen and farmers from the villages along the strait, and even a few grimy men who looked like miners. But there is a lignite mine not far from the city, and a narrow-gauge railroad running to it. Of the prosperous-seeming men, however, Bell picked out one here and there, toward whom all passers-by adopted a manner of cringing respect. Bell lounged against a pole and studied them thoughtfully. Men with an air of amused and careless scorn, which only men with unlimited power may adopt. He saw one grossly fat man with hard and cruel eyes. The uniformed policeman drove all traffic abjectly out of the way of his carriage, and stood with lifted hat until he had passed. The fat man gave no faintest sign of acknowledgment. I wonder, said Bell slowly and very grimly, if that's the master. And then a passer-by dodged quickly past his shoulder, brushing against him, and waited humbly in the street. Bell turned. A party of men were taking up nearly all the sidewalk. There were half a dozen of them in all, and nearly in the middle was the bulky, immaculate, pigmented Riviera. Bell stiffened, but to move beyond clearing the way would be to attract attention. He backed clumsily off the curbing as if making way, and Ribiera looked at his face. Bell's hand drifted near his hidden weapon, but Ribiera looked neither surprised nor alarmed. He halted and chuckled. Ah, the Signor Bell! Bell said nothing, looking as stupid as possible, merely because there was nothing else to do. Ah, oh, do not deny my acquaintance, said Ribiera. He laughed. I advise you to go and look at the view over the harbor. Good day, Signor Bell. Laughing, he went off along the street and Bell felt a cold horror creeping over him as he realized what Ribiera might mean. Ribiera had entirely too much against him to greet him only, in a town where even the dogs dared not bark without the master's express command. He had guards with him, men who would have shot Bell down at a nod from Ribiera. Bell burst into a mad run for the waterfront. When the bay spread out before his eyes, he saw what Ribiera meant, 
and something seemed to snap in his brain. The plane in which he and Jameson and Paula had escaped in was floating out in the harbor. It was unmistakable. A larger, bulkier seaplane floated beside it. The buzzing in the air the night before, the arrival of the plane had been telephoned from Cape Virgins. Through a glass, perhaps, even its alighting had been watched, and a big seaplane had gone out to bring it back. Footprints in the sand would lead toward the lighthouse. There would be plenty of men to storm that if necessary, to take the three fugitives, but they would have found only Paula. It was quite possible that the plane had only been sent for after Bell and Jameson had been seen to land in Punta Arenas, and Paula, in the master's hands, would explain Ribiera's amusement perfectly. Bell found Jameson looking hurriedly for him, and Jameson glanced at his utterly white face and said softly, We want to get where we can't be seen to talk. There's the devil to pay. No use hiding, said Bell. His lips seemed stiff. Paula. Hide anyway, snapped Jameson. He fairly thrust Bell into an alleyway between two houses and thrust two rounded objects beneath his loose-fitting coat. Two grenades. I have two more. The boat we came in is taken. So is the plane, said Bell emotionlessly. And there is a sign, in English, posted where we tied it up. The sign says, The Senores Bell and Jameson may recover their boat on application to the master, and may also receive news of a late traveling companion from him. We're known, Bell told him, and amazingly found it possible to smile faintly. Ribiera met me on the street and spoke to me and laughed and went on. Jameson stared. Bell's manner was almost entirely normal again. Then Jameson shrugged. The sense of what you're saying, he observed wryly, is that we're licked. Let us then go to see the master. I confess I feel some curiosity to know just what he's like. Bell was smiling. Being in an entirely abnormal state, he had a curious certitude of the proper course to adopt. He went up to a policeman and said politely, in Spanish, I am desired to report to the master himself. Will you direct me? The policeman abased himself instantly and trotted with them as a guide. And Bell walked naturally now, with his head up and his shoulders back, and smoked leisurely as he went, and the policeman's abasement became abject. All who walked with that air of amused superiority in Punta Arenas were high in the service of the master. Obviously the two men, in these dejected clothes, must also be high in the service of the master, and had adopted their disguise for purposes into which a mere policeman and a slave of the master should not dare inquire. Jameson was rather grim and still. Jameson thought he was walking to his death, and Bell smiled peculiarly and talked almost gaily, and, as Jameson thought, almost irrationally. They came to a house set in a fairly spacious lawn behind a rather high wall. There were greenhouses behind it, and there were flowers growing as well as any flowers can be expected to grow in such high altitudes. 
It was an extraordinarily cheerful dwelling to be found in Punta Arenas, but the shuddering fear with which the little policeman removed his hat as he entered the gateway was instructive. They were confronted by four other policemen, on guard inside the gate. Estos señores, began the abject one. Take us to the master, commanded Bell, in a species of amused and superior scorn. It is required, senor, said the leader of the four on guard, very respectfully. It is required that none enter without being searched for weapons. Bell laughed. Does the master manage things so? he asked scornfully. Now where I am deputy, no man would dare to think of a weapon to be used against me. If it is the master's rule, though... The policeman cringed. Bell scornfully thrust an automatic out. Take it, he snapped, and go and tell the master that the senores Bell and Jameson await his pleasure, and that they have given up their weapons. The policeman scuttled toward the house. Bell smiled at his cigarette. Do you know Bell? said Jameson dryly, in English. I'd hate to play poker with you. I'm not bluffing, said Bell. Not altogether. I have a four-card flush with the draw to come. Almost instantly, the policeman returned, more abject still. He had stammered out Bell's message just as it was given him, and the slaves of the master did not usually disobey orders, especially orders designed to prevent any danger of a doomed man or woman trying to assassinate the master before madness was complete. Bell and Jameson were received by liveried servants in utter silence and conducted through a long passageway, too long to have been contained entirely in the house as seen from the front. Indeed, they came out into a great open greenhouse in which the smell of flowers was heavy. There were flowers everywhere, and a benign, small, old man with a snowy beard and hair sat at a desk as if chatting of amiable trivialities with the frock-coated men who stood about him. The white-haired old man lifted a blossom delicately to his nostrils and inhaled its perfume with a sensitive delight. He looked up and smiled benignly upon the two. It was then that Jameson got a shock surpassing all the rest. Bell's hands were writhing at the end of his wrists, writhing as if they were utterly beyond his control and as if they were longing to rend and tear. And Bell suddenly looked down at them, and his expression was that of a man who sees cobras at the ends of his arms. End of chapter 16 of Murder Madness by Murray Linster